0: broadcasting live from the business radio x studios in midtown atlanta it's time for health connect south radio brought to you by sharewick media your health and wellness content specialist health connect south is to serve the health community as a sustainable platform for regional health collaborations through our collective work we seek to broadly define and advance the southeast role in the future of health serving as a gateway between health industry silos we seek to provide unique and meaningful partnership opportunities in health we are pleased to share this information and these experts with you as a part of serving our mission. Want to be part of the discussion? Join in. Tweet questions and comments at HCS2014.
1: Good morning, everyone. It's CW Hall, your host here on Health Connect South Radio, episode five. Already
0: it's flying by, isn't it? It
1: is. And uh, that was Krista Baruti, our producer extraordinaire. Good
0: morning, CW.
1: And uh, we were celebrating the fact that traffic was cooperating with us this morning. We've had some challenges this uh,
0: Diana. <laughs> early
1: time slot. Diana had a rough ride going home. That's Diana Keo, the uh, founder and CEO of Sherwick Media Group and the uh, company that's responsible for helping us put the show on. So thanks for taking time again.
2: Good morning. And it's glad the traffic was very light this morning.
1: <laughs> Had some excitement here in downtown Atlanta yesterday that uh, left everybody scratching their heads and complaining about the ride home yesterday. But uh, in studio with us today, we've got a couple of uh, innovators within the heart health space. We're kind of continuing on. Our uh, series, where we're highlighting both innovators and researchers, uh, companies that are doing some uh, exciting things within the healthcare space, trying to advance the uh, community's aggregate health. And uh, we're introducing a couple of people to you today in the heart space. We've got Dr. Latouf from Emory, he's one of the researchers and a cardiothoracic surgeon there. I'm looking forward to learning about some of the research that you're doing and uh, things that are coming down the road uh, and how we might possibly be able to get some information out that would be useful to your projects and what you're doing. So thanks for taking time. I know you're a very busy surgeon uh, and a professor there at Emory, so welcome.
3: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: And uh, a couple weeks ago, I met Robert Arkin. He's from Sensiotech, chief executive officer and founder there. They're a company that is doing some cool things uh, with data as well as uh, some monitoring technologies that are going to uh, help hospitals as the patient populations and the level of acuity that we see in a hospital setting or, or, or even subacute type setting starts to change. Uh, they're providing some technology there that uh, he'll be telling us about that uh, could be kind of aimed at that and helping uh, those hospitals uh, better care for those patients. And I'm and, um, looking forward to hearing more about what you're doing. So thanks for taking some time out of your day too, Robert. Well, thank you. Well, we'll start with you, Dr. Lutouf. Um, you know, share with us, I know that you recently, a, little, a few months back, you were uh, presenting information about uh, a project that you've been working on as it related to patients that have some conduction problems, trying to deal with uh, pacemaker insertion, and some of them ended up being too sick to be able to tolerate some uh, open, full open surgery, and so you were trying to come up with some non-invasive ways or at least minimally invasive ways that you might be able to address those patients' needs. Absolutely, and uh, so I'm looking forward to hearing
3: about that. Well, oh, thank you very much. Uh, over the last uh, ten years, actually, um, uh, the techniques of percutaneous insertion of uh, pacemakers uh, uh, was developed for patients who have biventricular uh, uh, disfun- conduction dysfunction, and uh, some of those patients uh, would uh, not be suitable for uh, such technology uh, and uh, failed to benefit from the percutaneous technology and, and uh, uh, my good friend and, and a senior cardiologist at uh, Emory Midtown, Dr. Angel Leon, came to me in 2001 and said, Omar, can you figure a way where you can help those very sick patients who have very poor uh, cardiac function with an operation where you could put a, a lead on their heart uh, uh, without uh, basically uh, creating a big operation that they could not sustain. Those patients have a a heart function of about 10% of normal. Wow. Uh, You know, you and I have a heart function of about 70%. Theirs is 10%. So they couldn't withstand a major operation.
1: Yeah, very unable to tolerate any kind of real activity,
3: I'm sure, as well. Exactly. Very life changing. Exactly. And um, uh, about 15 years earlier, I had participated in a procedure where uh, the first thoracoscopic procedures to operate on the lungs were conducted. I was one of the very first surgeons to perform thoracoscopic uh, operative procedures on the lung, and I had in mind that someday, I will apply that to the heart. I said, absolutely, I can do that. So I uh, uh, spoke with my chief, uh, Robert Garton, and I said, I think I can do this operation. He said, do it. So we went to the opera room and uh, did exactly that procedure, put those patients under maximum uh, monitoring, uh, performed the thoracoscopic <coughs> placement of uh, levendoric leads. And one after the other, we did, uh, since then, over 100 such cases with uh, uh, 100% success, zero mortality on those patients. And since then, uh, we have taught surgeons around the world how to do this uh, procedure and have been able to uh, benefit uh, patients who otherwise would have uh, not benefited from, uh, from that technique. This has led to a series of other operations of minimally invasive cardiac intervention.
1: From what I understand, a lot of those patients have mitral valve challenges that that are difficult to repair. When they're when you're talking about somebody that can't tolerate an open procedure, I'm sure that really complicates the situation for you. Well,
3: uh, interesting enough, is in that uh, in 2002 and 2003, when I performed those operations, I uh, I monitored those patients with transesophageal echo, each and every one of those. Uh, and um, when I took those patients to the opera room, I looked at their heart function, and I found that not only that their heart function was very poor, but each and every one of those patients had uh, at least moderate quite often severe moderate regurgitation and uh, often I placed always I placed a left ventricular pacing lead through a small incision more often they went in with mitral regurgitation, and they came out with mitral regurgitation. And as a surgeon who is accustomed to fixing right, the heart, right. I felt I was doing a job half complete. Yeah, yeah. And I said, well, that, that is a job half done. How can I address that issue? And that led me to file my first patent in uh, 2002 for a transapical mitral valve repair which since then has led to a series of other patent patents for transapical port placement and uh, uh, repair and replacement of aortic uh, valves and mitral valves and so on and so forth. And uh, 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 and accordingly has opened the gateway for transapical access and transapical structural heart repair.
1: Yeah, and historically that was a sternotomy you had to open just like a cabbage, a coronary bypass grafting, you had to open up the sternum and be able to access it through a big open incision. You can do that now through that minimally invasive approach.
3: Uh, prior to 2001, to do a valve repair or replacement required open, opening the chest mm-hmm. and going on the heartling machine, a major procedure. Yes, um, The... Thoughts that we introduced in 2001 were the the, the very first ideas introduced into the literature to uh, challenge the cardiac community that through the apex of the heart and through closed chest, without going on the heart-lung machine, that you could do this procedure. Mm -hmm. And since then, a whole new industry has started.
1: So you've been underway a little while now, and obviously you've gotten some measure of mass with regards to patients. You're talking 100 patients. Where does that put you on the continuum? We, we talked a little bit about before we went on air about you know that process from idea to it being a solution that's actually available on a, a broad scale to the, the patients in the community. So where do we stand now as it relates to doing just that, making it to where it's something that's available beyond our research study, for example?
3: Oh, uh, right now, the biventricular resynchronization is a broadly accepted method that is used and practiced across the globe. And the transapical access and repair of uh, aortic and mitral valves is also practiced across the globe. And, And there are literally tens of thousands of patients are benefiting from this technology today. That you started... <laughs> that, that the ideas I started—that is correct.
1: Well, talk about some of the uh, other research uh, projects that you're working on, or things that you're taking a look at actively now, or maybe considering. That uh, perhaps we could shed some light on and, and uh, try to introduce folks to what you're doing. So that if there's resources in the community that we might be able to bring together for you, we'd be—you know—that's part of what, why we're here.
3: Well, let me tell you uh, first who I am and and what brought me into cardiology and cardiac surgery. In a way, I am an animal of necessity. I I came into cardiology and cardiac surgery uh, for a specific reason. It was a very personal reason that drove me into this field. It was a family history uh, uh, that led me to come into this field. A very strong family history of heart disease. Mm -hmm. Uh, A father who died when I was 14 years old of a heart attack when he was 56 years of age. A brother who had his first heart attack when he was 37 years of age. Wow. And at the time I was in my fourth year of general surgery and I had very little interest in cardiac surgery. And at that point in time, I decided to switch from general surgery into cardiac surgery. That was 30 years ago. So 30 years ago, I decided to switch into cardiac surgery at a time when we really did not have thorough understanding of the etiology of heart disease, what causes myocardial infarctions, what causes aortic dissections, what causes valve dysfunction, what causes heart failure. So for the last 30 years, I have been involved in treating broken hearts Mm -hmm. and pulling patients out of near their graves. Right. Now, 30 years later, I understand the pathophysiology. And my job, really, as I see it today, as I'm approaching the other spectrum of the rainbow is how to put cardiac surgeons out of business. That is my mission today.
1: How are we doing? Are we, it would seem that, obviously, awareness is something that's much, much greater today, I think, among the general population, though we don't always use the information, but I think a lot more people are at least aware of the risks um, and that kind of thing. But uh,
3: how are we doing? Well, it's, it's time from to go from see. studying into solution. And over the last five years, I have gone into a mission of studying cardiometabolic syndrome. The problem of cardiac diseases is metabolic syndrome: high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, and lipid disorders. And if we focus on those four and throw on top of that smoking, we can conquer cardiovascular diseases. And if we don't focus on those four, cardiovascular diseases will conquer us and will bankrupt us. Yes. So the choice really is ours. And in my mind, can we put a strategy to conquer those diseases? And in my mind, the answer is a simple, absolute yes. Now, are we willing to do it? And when I see the work that Health South Connect is doing and is bringing people together, bringing industries together. And bringing thought leaders together, and say, let us collaborate. Let's bring Emory and Georgia Tech and Piedmont and Sensia, uh, and and let's put those thought leaders together and come up with joint programs. I and, and as I see Atlanta being a global hub of health information technology, yeah, I say. I think there is a real chance that we could put an action plan to the forefront.
2: Which would be very exciting. Can I have you back up and let's talk about this strategy yes. of going from, um, you know, put a, put a strategy in place. You said that you'd actually have a strategy in place to cure cardiovascular disease. I mean, I know that you're, everything that you're working on um, is doing that, but you know, in your if you if you could control this, what would that strategy
3: be? Well, um, I mean, if if you if you look at where information technology is today, if you look at the um, the diffusion of information technology in every discipline except healthcare today. Um, your phone company knows every telephone number that you have dialed, how many seconds each phone call is. They know where you have gone. They track your location. It doesn't matter where on the globe you are, they can locate you. Your bank knows every transaction that you have made. They know how much money you have in your bank account long before you know it. Uh, Google knows your taste of the foods, (laughs) the clothing, the shopping that you do better than you do.
4: True. Um, uh,
3: When you get into your car, you know about the health of your car more than you know about your own health. When you turn your ignition on, you know how much gasoline you have in your car. You know the pressure in your tires, (laughs) but you do not know your blood pressure. You know if your battery is full or not, but you do not know if your oxygen in your blood is adequately high or not, you know the health of your car more than you know the health of your body. You do not know if you have a normal heart rate or abnormal heart rate. So we've invested more in our phones, in our cars, in the security systems of our homes than we have invested in the most expensive thing that we own. You know, it's it's
1: interesting because this is a recurring theme that's quickly becoming uh, apparent through our discussions uh, here on the show, and that is the fact that the use of data, massive quantities that we collect, particularly at the provider level, you know, in an office or in a hospital, for example, much less... The, the extra layer now of data that's coming available through wearable technology, people, your, your telephone even can do some measure of, uh, you know, bio monitoring, if you will. Um, but it seems like that is a place where I think that we somehow need to try to put some focus, being able to take advantage of these vast quantities of data that is available. Uh, even to an uh, almost casual user, I mean, it's possible now for someone to really barely try and still get some measure of uh, physical you know, data about their health, uh, some level of it anyway. Um, but it, it would seem that those are the silos that we have to break down. With Breaking down silos being obviously one of the clear just, um, goals of what we're trying to do with Health Connect South, and that is a research facility here in town doing research that may overlap a study that's going on half a mile away, but you don't necessarily have access to each other's data, uh, that if you did, perhaps the outcome would be accelerated. Um, And just being able to see your own uh, health information such that you can try to take a little bit more of an active role in modulating it. Uh, Perhaps if I walked a little bit today, maybe my cholesterol and blood pressure would be better. That kind of thing. Gamification, if you will. Using our health data, Uh, but then also um, being able to make data available that's scrubbed of personal identifiers. It doesn't have to be C. W. Hall's health information, but a 47-year-old male whose father died at 48 of a sudden cardiac death. What is C. W. You know, what is this 47-year-old male's cholesterol, blood pressure, picture, and all that, so that we have data available that we can start to play with it, just like industry does. That's not healthcare. It seems like things like that kind of fall into what you're talking about. We've got all this data we're not really using it very well yet. Have you seen any kind of ways that we're that are either coming out of obviously being a part of Emory, we've got the Georgia Research Alliance and they're, you know, obviously trying to take advantage of budding minds that are coming up through the through the ranks there and and bringing ideas to to the community um, and commercializing them bring, so that they can become an, uh, an available solution. But do, do you see ways where we're, uh, that are in the works now where we're trying to do just what you were just talking about, where we're trying to take advantage of data and sharing it and using it?
3: Oh, I know that there's a lot of work being done. And invariably, we're going to see some of those coming to the forefront, uh, hopefully in the very near future. And and uh, I'm very hopeful that, to use your own terms, gamification of those very valuable data points that can be used not once every three months when you go to see right. your doctor, but almost on a daily basis where you can have that feedback that can reinforce you to go and exercise those 30 minutes every day and to yeah. check your blood pressure and take your medications and take your fruits and vegetables and and, and reduce your cholesterol on a regular basis, not once every three months. Mm-hmm.
1: You were telling your story. I thought it was compelling. I relate to it. I mean, my, my father did die of a sudden cardiac death at 48. Um, no problems prior to that. Um, so I, I, I felt your story as you were talking. How does that kind of affect you on a day-to-day basis when you're interacting with your patients, as you're going about your research? I mean, how does that Come through. I certainly came through here as a, in terms of the passion that you bring to what you're doing. But how do you relate that? Do you share your story with your patients and ha- have that kind of drive? What you research?
3: Well, um, I mean, uh, if your work becomes your passion, it's no longer your work. It becomes part of your life, and I feel that what I do really is 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 more of a hobby than than it is a a career or, or a, a, a a job yeah, a job <laughs> a, 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 you know, a money making right task. right um, and uh, and I, f- I feel I feel Mike I'm I'm a man on a mission and my mission is to to accomplish a certain a certain task and and uh, I feel at this point in time my task is to um, to to, 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 to address the issue on a global basis. I mean, it may sound uh, uh, maniacal in a way. It may sound uh, 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 more than a man can accomplish, that I'm taking on the world, but I am. That's exactly what I am doing. That's exactly what I want to do. And I have done, already I've started that. I mean, uh, since 2011, I've hosted conferences across the globe on this topic in partnership with the American College of College of Energy, the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, Emory University, Georgia Tech, uh, uh, the University of Jordan, uh, uh, held them in Jordan in Dubai and Chicago at Emory University, uh, uh, Georgia Regents University, Morehouse uh, College of Medicine, and uh, recently I had a phone call from uh, 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 the Commissioner of Health, Dr. Brenda Fitzgerald, and her uh, uh, Director of Disease Prevention, Dr. Jean O'Connor, and she said, uh, when are you going to host the next uh, national meeting on cardiometabolic syndrome? You told us that you're going to. I said, well, I will. Next time it's not going to be on studying cardiometabolic syndrome. It's going to be on how do we solve cardiometabolic syndrome. It's enough studying. It's time to solve cardiometabolic syndrome. And this is what we have been working on for the last, 24 months, coming up with cost-effective practical solutions that can be put in the hands of everybody.
1: So you've begun to identify some ways that you may be able to affect cardiometabolic syndrome. Yes. We've been talking with Dr. Omar Latouf. He's a thoracic surgeon and a researcher professor at uh, Emory, and we've been sharing some information about work that they've been doing, how they're trying to affect uh, those with a variety of heart problems. And um, as he's describing here, we're starting to try to find out ways that we might be able to affect just the general uh, health of the heart itself and try to uh, thwart heart failure, for example. And uh, uh, they're obviously getting some ideas in place now. You're closing in on some solutions, it sounds like. Uh, we believe we're very close. And so what what lacks... For you, moving that from where you stand today to making that available on a general general basis, because if we can bring it together for you, that's what we're all about.
3: Well, we uh, we hope we're within six to eight weeks from uh, having a product uh, that can be taken for uh, a clinical trial. And uh, you know, we hope we will take it into clinical trial and see whether it will. Past the muster or not?
1: So then it'll be just recruiting appropriate patients to fit the picture that, that you're trying to study. Yes, and that'll involve, I guess, interfacing with your local cardiology community to identify those patients and get them involved with your study.
3: That's right. It will it will be patients who have been who have received treatment after a certain uh, procedure and have been discharged from from a clinical setting and and follow up for. Uh, 90 days and comparing those who have received our protocol and those who have not and see if we can reduce their uh, uh, post-follow-up negative events.
1: So basically we're in a place where we're trying to start letting people be aware that we're bringing this out and and we're going to to study it. How do you interface with the medical community? Obviously you have a conference and present ideas but um, in your local community where your patients are going to come to you from, how do you interface with them to let them know, hey this is this is a study that's in your backyard, we want to try to help your patients?
3: Well I'm uh, obviously immersed in the medical community being at the faculty of Emory University and and connected with the American College of Cardiology and the site of thoracic surgeons so uh, I have my distribution network <laughs> so uh, you know I, I um, look forward to to reach out to uh, uh, my colleagues there and uh, I look forward also to uh, 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 reach out to my prior co-organizers into plan a conference in the next six to nine months uh, on moving from studying into solving cardiometabolic syndrome, and perhaps it would be that time that we would showcase some of those uh, solutions and roll them out.
2: Can you give us a hint of what <laughs> these product, or this product might be?
3: Oh, this will be very simple solutions that would be, would be used by someone with an 8th grade. Uh, they're basically applications they're very simple solutions. They're, they're they're not no rocket science. Anything that has to be useful has to target a someone with an eighth grade education that can be understood by someone who is very simple-minded. Uh, not to to um, be be disrespectful to right. to the average person, but it has to be easily understood. People have to understand that, okay, uh, you you have to answer the following questions every day. You have to take your vital signs and report them every day. And if your vital signs are abnormal, then they are going to be reported into a central station. And you're going to get a phone call if you are an outlier. You have to take your medications every day. And if you don't, it's going to be reported and you're going to get a phone call. And if if uh, if you're taking your medications, your vital signs are appropriate, and if you're answering the questions and all is well, as long as you're you're following the protocol, then all is well. But if something falls out of the protocol, then um, a red flag is going to pop up, and you will hear from the central station.
2: And hopefully it's being designed a lot better and a lot simpler than my remote control.
3: <laughs> oh, I will tell you. It will be, it, it is designed to be super simple. It really will be designed to be super simple. The one who is designing it is a physician and an application programmer who is, is just a genius of a programmer that is a Game Boy specialist that understands because he treats patients himself and understands that his patients cannot tolerate complex issues.
1: So it sounds like that's kind of where we're going is it's an application that helps me be a little bit more mindful, I guess, of some key components to my daily behaviors, whether they may be food choices, activity choices just monitoring my vital signs from a day-to-day basis, for example, things that are easy to, to forget. But it's trying to pull in and engage the, those at-risk people to try to thwart the development or progression of the disease. So it's 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 almost, it sounds like a, an application designed with some gamification in, in, in mind that will help me be, here are my vitals, here are my choices, how
3: can I tweak them? Is, is that... Am I on track?
2: Or change your behavior?
3: Well, you're absolutely on track. If we look at four key issues, we'll make them five for now. If we look at cholesterol, high blood pressure, glucose, obesity, and then we'll add smoking. So if we coach the general population on those five issues, and we put the burden on the individual, we want you to control your blood pressure. It's your responsibility to record your blood pressure and know that every day your blood pressure should be below 140 over 90. Every day, not once every three months. There is no excuse. Every day you should know what your blood pressure is. Just like every day you should not drive your car with the gauge on empty, which is more important driving your car with the gauge on empty or understanding that your blood pressure should not be 200 systolic. We have not set our priority in the society correctly. Every day we should know that I should not be obese and I should reduce my weight down and exercise.
1: So the And so on and so forth. So the people that you're looking to involve in this type of a study and this type ultimately be users of this kind of a solution, are they folks that have been identified as either in the early stages of the cardiometabolic syndrome or they are at risk for it based on family history? Who are you
3: looking for? Who are you trying to interface with? Well the the people that we have partnered with has been employers. The last conference that we have held. So from a kind of a health
1: population management kind of yeah, perspective, in right. a way.
3: Yeah, the, we have partnered with multiple large employers in the state of Georgia. And we'll probably, uh, in partnership with the Department of Public Health, we will go back to employers and and test that with with employers and roll it out. But ultimately, this could be a product that could be rolled out into mobile phone companies. Right. And let the mobile phone companies take it and push it into the marketplace. And there is no reason why this could not be. I mean, not that I'm beating my own drum. I mean, this, this, I'm sure others are going to develop something similar to it. Uh, uh, there is no reason why this could not be a more broadly applied technology uh, 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 on on universal basis. It's 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 really. It's a, what we are facing is a massive problem. Right. 18 million people die every year from metabolic syndrome. In the world, 18 million people die annually. That's more people die every year than from all automobile accidents, all airplane accidents, all Wars, all natural disasters. How much money are we spending in disease prevention, in education? A lot less than fighting other issues. Massive problems require massive solutions. This is a call to arm against cardiometabolic syndrome.
1: Well, it sounds like progress is being made that obviously some uh, ideas are emerging that's going to try to take advantage of some of the information that we have readily available and getting more and more easy to access from your home, even communicate that straight from my home remotely to my physician's office. So there's technologies that are certainly uh, in place today that'll facilitate that kind of thing. So it's exciting to hear where you stand, that you're on the edge of now bringing it out and beginning to test what you're talking about. But it it sounds to me like um, that could end up having an impact uh, on this obviously large and costly problem. Any thoughts that you have uh, in in terms of uh, parting thoughts regarding what you're working on uh, or resources that we could potentially try to identify in the community for you before we introduce you to uh, Mr. Arkin?
3: Um, uh, Let's uh, work together in uh, planning to host a joint conference and invite all parties who may be interested in coming up with solutions to promote a, a common platforms to address this problem and. You know, plan something that could happen in six to nine months.
1: I know that there's work underway. Diana's a part of it with uh, with relation to diabetes, for example, with the diabetes prevention planning team and mm-hmm. pulling resources together to face that facet. And obviously that has some heavy overlap with regards to the cardiac health community. So maybe there's some either piggyback opportunities or things like that. And from a general awareness kind of perspective that we can pull together.
2: Our company, uh, Sherwick, does a lot of work in in cardiovascular and and, uh, thoracic surgeons. Uh, Dr. Andy Martin is our chief medical officer. So we are in, globally, we're in that space a lot. And one thing I've always appreciated about your reputation, Dr. Latouf, is that you are known in the industry of taking very complicated things, and making them simple. And there'll be hundreds of people doing the same procedure over and over because that's the way it's always done. And then Dr. Latouf kind of comes in and goes, well, there's an easier way to do this. Or, I mean, that's his reputation Mm -hmm. around the world for for doing that. And it's really um, in our backyard is this resource and um, whatever we as Health Connect South and we as Sharework Media can do to get the word out and actually you know, even amplify you even more, we're happy to do that.
1: So, yeah, thanks for taking time away from your office and, uh, and the research that you're doing as well as your patients that you see on a daily basis. So uh, we really appreciate your time. It's been great to be able to help give some awareness to what you're doing. I'm honored. Thank you very much. And we'll have to have you back for an update on how things are going once you start pulling patients in and uh, uh, getting your research underway. Thank you. Well, I happen to have a chance, as I mentioned earlier, as we started on the show, to... Uh, meet Robert Arkin. He's from Sensiotech, the chief executive officer and founder of that company, and uh, they've got some cool, innovative uh, monitoring technology, and it's kind of aimed at addressing some of the trends that uh, are in healthcare as it relates to inpatient facilities and the acuities of the patients that are there. So thanks for taking some time to uh, talk to us about your innovations, Robert, and let's
4: get in and kind of hear your story and what brought you to where we are today with Sensiotech. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Sensiotech's goal is to extend the reach of uh, biosensor monitoring to a much larger patient population at a fraction of the cost. And we like biosensors because biosensors provide immediacy. And so what we have developed is uh, a technology platform that represents an amalgamation of a number of different types of technologies signal processing, which I'll get into, information technology, data analytics. And one of the virtues of the platform is that it is completely non-contact, which has significant ramifications in terms of patient compliance or non-compliance. And because it's non-contact, it can also be uh, continuous. And I think uh, Dr. Latouf will agree uh, that... Continuous monitoring has a lot of advantages over intermittent monitoring. So our system really begins uh, at the point of care where the, where the patient is. We have built a medical device, a sensor panel. And the sensor panel is using a type of signal processing, a low-power radar, which sends out signals uh, that will penetrate the Patient's body. So, if a patient is lying in bed or in a chair, there will be a device, the sensor panel there. The sensor panel will be continuously emitting signals. Those signals will go through the body, and some of the reflected signals will come back to the sensor panel, where we have developed algorithms that process those signals and turn them into data. Uh, What these signals are really doing is measuring internal. organ motion and so when the signals come back right now we're we're turning that data into heart rate information respiration rate information and also torso and limb movement in the future we'll be able to measure other types of motion like for example uh, cardiac output which could be a surrogate uh, for blood pressure and some other things as well but once that data is acquired, then we send it up to the cloud. Um, and, uh, you know, the cloud, cloud technology is basically uh, a computer server uh, and a client architecture. It's a place to store data. And so our data goes up there, and then we have built applications that can use that data And those applications are uh, available on any type of uh, mobile device. So uh, where we have deployed the system so far has been in hospital environments, in nursing home environments, and in home environments. So we see um, our platform uh, as uh, a technology that can really cut across the healthcare continuum and uh, make real-time information available not only to caregivers but to the patients themselves, uh, wherever they might be.
2: So, the way you were describing the technology with the you know the sensors going through and the organs, and I mean, are there any side effects? I mean, if someone were listening to this and didn't understand the platform and how it works, it would be like you were describing a microwave. So <laughs> go ahead and talk about side effects and how that research was actually... How did you come to this technology to actually know that it's going to work and what it can do?
4: So the particular type of radar technology is called ultra-wideband. Uh, ultra-wideband was originally uh, a stealth technology which was used by the military to see people behind walls. Uh ultra-wideband has a lot of advantages, uh, but in terms of safety, it's very low power. Uh, it's non-ionizing. And so it's about 5,000 times less powerful than your cell phone. Um, it's so safe that the FCC, uh, together with the FDA, allowed its use uh, specifically for healthcare technologies. So safety is not an issue. Um, every day we're bombarded by different kinds of radio waves, uh, and this particular one is extremely benign.
1: Robert Arkin from Sensiotech, a company that's developing some uh, very innovative uh, platforms for monitoring patients. Can you talk, Robert, about when you sat there and you came up with the idea, what, what what led you to think, wow, this is a
4: problem that needs to be solved in this way? Well, I can't take credit for the idea. Uh, there are a number of very smart scientists uh, who came before me. But uh, when I met the inventor of the technology, whose name is Ephraim Gravilevich, um, I readily saw its application for population health. And what really motivated me was my own personal experience, uh, both my parents died of lung cancer uh... both of their illnesses were extended and uh... they lived in florida i lived in georgia so i i couldn't be there all of the time uh... to monitor their health uh... when i was there um, i found the experience very frustrating i'm sure not as frustrating as my parents found the experience but You know, the idea of carrying films around from doctor to doctor Mm -hmm. and trying to get in touch with people and uh, just dealing with a lot of unknowns um, was confusing and scary and strongly resonated with me. So I had made a decision some years before that to transition uh, out of my profession, which was the law, into healthcare and healthcare technology. I wanted to have uh, a much larger impact on society than I felt that I could have as a lawyer. And um, so to that end, uh, I devoted myself to things that I thought would help people. I've been involved with Sensiotech for seven years. and so when I saw what was essentially a prototype of a, of a type of technology that had the opportunity to monitor vital signs remotely in a non-contact, non-invasive fashion, I realized that that could have global implications um, on what we now call population health. Uh, I also realized that uh, it that this type of technology can have also tremendous implications in terms of improved outcomes and in terms of reduced cost of care. We all know by now, and Dr. Latouf alluded to it, that prevention is a lot less expensive than treatment. So one of the impacts of data analytics uh, with regard to our technology is the ability uh, to predict the onset of um, acute events sometime before they actually occur. We're at the beginning of working on this, but again, as Dr. Latouf mentioned, um, in other uh, industries, uh, data analytics is ubiquitous. So we can take uh, some of that learning from other industries, apply it to the data that we're generating uh, to be able to provide predictive tools that can benefit uh, humankind.
2: And so, predictive tools, tell me a little bit more about that, what are those?
4: Well, for, for example, uh, data analytics really relates to um, taking a large amount of information and trying to find patterns. Uh, We're generating information about um, the heart and about the lungs and about torso movement and limb movement every couple of nanoseconds. Uh, Heretofore, uh, there really hasn't been a technology that could acquire data at that granular level. But this is one of the benefits of our type of signal processing technology that, that we've um, adopted and uh, enhanced. So, that granular data has tremendous uh, richness um, and uh, through that we'll be able to identify certain patterns of behavior. So, you know, let's say that you, let's say that someone suffers from congestive heart failure. There, there are some indications um, that are going to occur. Um, uh, tachycardia or bradycardia, so high heart rate or, or low heart rate, labored breathing and so forth. All of that information which we now look, for, look at in isolation, when taken together, can illustrate for us a predictable pattern of the onset of congestive heart failure. And even uh, at a less sophisticated level, uh, we have our system right now uh, being tested in the memory unit uh, of an assisted living facility. One of the characteristics of Alzheimer's patients is agitation. Now, of course, if you treat agitation after the fact, the treatment is more traumatic um, and it's more involved. What we're able to do is to create trends that demonstrate the uh, onset of agitation so that the patient can be treated you know, before that level of agitation becomes problematic. Uh, and we're doing that just through limb movement and torso movement.
2: So how extensive, I mean you've been around for, or you've been with the company for seven years, you said. Um, How extensive are you? Is it in beta format or are you actually out into the marketplace?
4: Well, uh, we're at the cusp. Uh, We've obtained FDA clearance for the device. We have a strategic partnership with Wellstar Health System which is providing us with a laboratory to test the application of our technology in various settings whether it be the hospital or at home uh we have uh recently um, consummated deals with some uh significant uh commercial clients i'm not liber- at liberty to identify them but <clears throat> one is one of the largest uh search engine companies in the world and the other is one of the largest uh, pharmaceutical companies in the world the intent of the pharmaceutical company is to use our technology to monitor patients in drug trials and the application there will be to first of all reduce attrition rates because there are high attrition rates in drug trials and it is expensive to recruit patients to drug trials so to the extent that our technology can help to reduce attrition rates by providing the principal investigators with information real-time information about how the patients are doing um, that will help to reduce dropout rates reduce the cost of trials bring drugs to market faster and so forth it'll also help uh, those principal investigators deal with whatever kinds of physiological problems uh, a patient in a drug trial might be experiencing.
2: So for the benefit of people listening, because we can't show them pictures here, describe to me, you, you talked about a platform, you talked about a device. Talk to me about what happens with your technology. Is it separate pieces? Describe to me what it looks like and what it, you know, where it's placed and how it works.
4: So the only phys- physical manifestation of our technology is a sensor panel. Currently the sensor panel is about an inch thick and about 21 inches by 21 inches in size. We expect the size of that to be reduced by about 75% over the next year. That sensor panel can be placed under a bed, under a mattress, it can even be placed uh, in a ceiling. So inside that sensor panel is a whole lot of technology um, but the key point is that it's generating a type of radio signal, ultra-wideband radio. It's called impulse radio. And those impulses are being emitted through an antenna array. So those impulses then penetrate the body. They can actually uh, penetrate this table that we're mm-hmm. at. It can really go through anything except solid metal. Um, And so the impulses penetrate the body. Some of those impulses go beyond the body. Uh, But all of those impulses reflect back to the sensor panel. Inside the sensor panel, there's a little computer. And so we process those signals and interpret them using signal processing algorithms. At that point, those signals become health data. And uh, that information gets packaged in little data packets and sent uh, through a modem uh, to a server. That server can be local or that server can be uh, remote. But basically all a server is 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 a computer with server software on it. Mm And so uh, when that data is received by the server, it's going into a database, and then once it's in that database, there are applications that interpret the information that is in that database, just like Google does.
1: But it'll give you a readout of various vital signs and, and so it provides, markers that you're watching. It,
4: it'll pro- we have a number of different indications. So we have a heart rate indication. We have a respiration rate indication. We have a patient fall indication, which is on a scale of 1 to 10 that measures the likelihood of mm-hmm. a fall. We have an agitation score. We also have a, an application uh, for bed ulcer management which indicates uh, the extent to which a patient has moved over a period of time, uh, whether an assisted turn is required, and uh, also documents whether all of that has occurred. So, you know, if you can imagine a circle, basically what we're trying to do is to uh, identify risk, physiological risk, health risk, risk. identify it, stratify it, basically triage it, what should we go after first, Um, create action points so that uh, caregivers can take action, and, and document what action has been taken. So that's kind of a positive feedback loop that we're creating through our applications which are accessible. On any kind of device, be it an iPad or what what have you,
2: and so basically that data would be then sent to a caregiver or nurse that's at a station on a on a beeper or an iPad or a phone.
4: Yeah, you know, beeper is kind of uh, old <laughs> technology, uh, but a phone or an iPad. So let's say in the case of um, um, a caregiver who is in a nursing home. Uh, She'll get a score from uh, 1 to 10 that uh, indicates the probability of a bed exit, okay? She knows the patient. Uh, what we do with every patient is we create a baseline for that patient. So it's really individualized health because all of us are different. Right. And then we measure aberrations from that baseline. So the nurse will get an indication that uh, there's a 80% likelihood that that patient who needs assistance getting out of bed is starting to struggle to get out of bed. And then action can be taken.
2: You can almost see this technology turning into uh, turning every single hospital room or, you know, for those of us that have parents that we're taking care of, almost a smart house. Yeah. Um, and yeah. you can see Dr. Latouf leaning forward, <laughs> and he's probably already put it into yeah. practice and in what he's doing. And so.
1: as as it always happens here, our time goes fast. So, before we do run out of time, clearly there's there's implications for its value. Um, what what do you need? What what will help make this available to the entities out there that could benefit from its application, whether it's you know, better patient outcomes or reduction in risk or both? What, what, what
4: do you need? I want to make the point that uh, medical device technology is actually at a very critical point. Um, it is hard to get medical devices on the market. It's costly, it's time-consuming, and there's really not a lot of patience for it uh, in the business community. Uh, I've talked with uh, a number of venture capitalists and advisors, and they say that like they're getting out of healthcare. Okay, the reason they're getting out of healthcare technology is because they can make money faster with other applications. You know, whether right. whether it's Snapchat—not to denigrate snack, Snapchat or Facebook or what have you. So there is not a lot of serious money that's available for serious solutions. And what we have is a serious solution that can have a dramatic impact on population health, on outcomes, on reducing costs, on uh, facilitating the transition from the hospital, which we need to do, to the health home because of the demographic avalanche that we're facing with the aging of baby boomers. So, you know, a company like Sensiotech needs Series B financing, and it needs advocates, uh, medical advisors, board members who really, you know, care about the future of, uh, hu- of humanity. And, you uh, So we're looking towards uh, additional collaborations. Uh, We expect to be entering into a a clinical study with Emory University in the next month or two in a cardiac uh, step-down unit. We need more of that, and we need the financial support uh, to be able to... Uh, perform. I know some of, of those studies. players
1: are part of the Health Connect South platform already, so I'm very glad that we had the chance to bring you on and let people know about what you're doing, because uh, we might be able to actually have somebody that's in that space find out mm-hmm. about you through this. So very glad that you were able to take time to uh, to be here. You got some final thoughts before we have to well, go? i was Diana? just going to
2: ask: Is there for for Dr. Latouf and for Robert? Is there anything else that we haven't asked you that you wanted to say before we close out here?
3: Uh, I've had the chance to see an uh, earlier version of uh, Dr. Arkin's technology, and I was very impressed with it. I think uh, if I had that technology available uh, for me today in my hospital setting, it would um, uh, ease my mind in the care of my patient. And I think it uh, has the definite potential of improving outcome.
1: The only way you get that kind of real-time data is with some kind of uh, somewhat risky invasive devices, art lines, and different things like that that give you those types of real-time information. And, you know, to be able to have access to it remotely like that, with a, without the invasive risk, is fantastic.
4: There are a lot of consumer applications out there. Uh, this is a true medical device technology cleared by the FDA. <laughs> well,
1: Robert Arkin of Syncio Tech. Dr. Omar Latouf from Emory uh, and the Heart and Vascular Center over there. Thank you both very much for making time today. Uh, sounds like we'll probably have opportunity to talk to you both again down the road here as we talk more about its application f- as it relates to Sensiotech and then, of course, the rollout of your study to be uh, underway here soon. Diana Keo of with Media, thanks for taking time.
2: Great to be back.
1: Krista Baruti, producer extraordinaire and voice talent.
2: Thanks for
0: letting me push your buttons.
1: Thank you all very much for making us a part of your day here on Health Connect South Radio. Make sure you have an appointment to join up with us next Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. See you then.
0: This show is brought to you by Sherwick Media Group. Sherwick is the health and wellness solution, content that inspires change. Learn more at www.Sherwick.com. That's sharewik.com And link up with us on Facebook and Twitter.